Okay, r- remind me again, Greg, what is your connection with Minnedosa? Because, you know, with all your jobs and places you've lived and schools you've gone to, I can't keep track. Uh, I've never lived in Minnedosa, but I have a proud connection. My dad lived there for over 25 years, and our guest host this morning and tomorrow morning, well... Her ties to Minidosa are much stronger, uh, but that is our kind of our mutual connection, isn't it, Lorraine McNabb? Yeah, that's right. Oh, I I love that song. I'm so glad you played that. Yeah, I actually went to school with your brother for a few years. We oh, were in high right. school together. So I was born and raised in Minidosa. That song, anyone who's from Minidosa since who've spread across the country knows that song. It was played at my brother's wedding in the fall. So yeah, that's uh, that's good stuff. Thank well, you. Welcome. Thank you. Welcome. It's great to have you in the studio. Lorraine McNabb, of course, is the uh, anchor for Global News at 6. Will we see you at 6 o'clock tonight? I don't think that's in anyone's best interest for me to get up <laughs> at 4 a.m. and then put this face on the news at 6. So, no, Brittany Greenslade has graciously volunteered to fill in for tonight. So we're going to see you for the next, or hear you for the next couple of days. We get to see you. You'll get to hear Lorraine and her unique perspective on uh, all things Winnipeg and Manitoba news. And and uh, big shout out to Minidosa this morning. Thank you. And a big shout out to that town. I love it. Still do. And it's fitting that you're here, uh, particularly today, because there's just so much uh, really important stuff happening in the news. And I think what's uh, one of the things that's really caught us, as Jeff Braun told you at six o'clock, is the fact that an arrest has been made in this really horrifying story of this bus shack at Portage Place. Um, you know, the fact that the police would show, had to freeze this video deliberately uh, is scary. And it's also frightening to me that this bus shack exists and it's still like, as long as I, when I used to take the bus and work downtown, what, 20 years ago, I was never comfortable going in that bus shack. It's a no go zone for anybody in Winnipeg that knows anything about downtown. That is a no go zone. And how is that acceptable for essentially two decades? I know. It's kind of scary because some of the comments, too, on the story in the last 24 hours have been from people saying, you know, maybe there should be a pamphlet for someone telling them the places you shouldn't go. And on that list, as far as some are concerned, would be that bus shelter. But the question would be you, you can't stand and wait for a bus at 10 30 in the morning without that risk. I mean, that's also a ridiculous thing to consider. Doesn't that feel backwards? Yeah. Yeah. Right? On Portage Avenue, on our flagship street, you can't stand in a bus shack that's meant to, to be shelter from the cold. I, it's, I don't know. So we have a new student from the University of Winnipeg basically seeking public transportation in the middle of the morning, is attacked by a clear predator and Tammy Scraback uh, from the uh, Winnipeg Police yesterday never ever heard her or anyone from Winnipeg Police addressing the media. I don't think in in a more passionate and emotional fashion. And actually, on that subject, uh, let, let's illustrate that. When I'm saying it was a horrific attack, it is a horrific attack. Not only did he punch him, he punched him, he kicked him, he knocked him to the ground, he continued to punch him and beat him about the head until the point that this poor victim was unable to move. We're not talking about somebody who's who's high on drugs, somebody who's going, you know, erratic behavior or anything else. We're talking about somebody who's standing there purposely waiting to prey on, on a victim. And that person is more dangerous than, than anybody else out there who's, you know, perhaps, you know, dealing drugs or whatever it is. It's this person that the public needs to be concerned about. So the individual arrested, known to police, but the fact that police 
all citizens essentially of our city know that this is a place that you shouldn't be by yourself or even in a group unless you're dealing or buying drugs. Uh, something's got to change there, Lorraine. It raises a lot of questions, I think, for folks who work downtown. This, of course, assault happened on Tuesday, a half an hour before the mayor, police, cadets stood downtown and talked about downtown safety and money that was going into initiatives to improve the way people feel downtown, their perceptions of downtown. 30 minutes prior to this, this assault happened. And I think it has to generate a whole new conversation about how they do this better. Now, they got this guy, they, they a pursuit happened. Last night, uh, the pursuit began at Portage and Sherbrooke, and it involved a stolen vehicle from Gimli. And so Air One guided the pursuit that ended at Portage Avenue and Albany Street about 10 minutes later. Police actually had to lay down spikes to end this chase. So this suspect is facing charges, including aggravated assault and vehicle theft. And uh, again, the, the the video is at cjob.com. It's at globalnews.ca slash Winnipeg, where you see the two, the 17-year-old and this suspect in the bus shack. And uh, just as he turns and lunges at the victim and punches him, that's where the, the video is frozen. I don't really want to imagine the rest, but unfortunately I can based on uh, Constable Scrabeck's description. It's not just what happened after that they froze the video. It's what happened before, too, that she detailed yesterday that there was minutes of video where, in the police's opinion, they believe that he deliberately waited for that exodus from the bus shop that or bus shelter, that he was looking at this person that, for whatever reason, this victim was potentially targeted. And the predatory nature of that, too, was why they kind of came out and said, look, this is so alarming, not just how violent it was, but sort of that pause, that wait uh, that they believe the suspect was doing. It also highlights the fact that a lot of crime, if not most crime in our city, is amongst and between people that know one another that are involved in the drug trade or are are nefarious characters to begin with. It's when this happens to an innocent bystander that our radar goes off and that there are all sorts of questions that need to be raised. And have we been too passive on this and just saying, well, you know what, we know the drug dealers run that bus shack and we've kind of just, you know, let them do what they need to do. Is this going to increase and highlight, put a spotlight on the fact that, you know what, just being passive about this isn't going to work any longer. It's time to take some action. Mackley McGarry and Loren McNabb joining us in studio today and tomorrow. The face of global television news at 6 p.m. here in Winnipeg. And uh, we were talking about the bus shack down in Portage Place and that nasty attack. There has been an arrest uh, in that case. Just got a text message, and we love your interaction at 204-780-6868. Nancy says, good morning. It's not just the bus shack at Portage Place. Have you gone inside Portage Place lately? I decided to go downtown and go shopping. Haven't been there in years. I was scared just walking in. The food court is so scary. They were opening, open, openly doing drug deals, I think is what the text is trying to say. Needless to say, I didn't continue shopping downtown, and now this, I will never go back. It's also sad to know the police are aware of all the wrongdoings and continue to let it 
happen. I think that's going to be a popular uh, sentiment today, Lauren. It's hard to argue with that with what's happened in the last 24 hours. We work downtown. Our studios at Global Television are right at Portage of Maine, and I go for walks regularly, and I have to honestly say I've never been concerned at all. I'll go up and down Portage Avenue all the way to Portage Place, and it's never really bothered me. That's largely because some of the crime that we hear about is uh, where the person, the victim, knew the suspect, the suspect knew the victim. This is completely random, and that maybe changes the conversation for folks at home. We'd love to hear more of your feedback on this story. 204-780-6868 by text or send us an email, gmac at cgob.com or brett at cgob.com. Looking west, two Edmonton women have been charged with the attempted murders of children in their care. Global Edmonton's Nancy Carlson says this case goes back to last month. It was on a Saturday night, December 16th. Police were called to a North Edmonton home by a babysitter. When they arrived, they found five children, two with serious injuries. Two women who live at the residence have been charged. One is 23 years old, the other 24. As well as attempted murder, each faces charges of aggravated assault, child abandonment, unlawful confinement, criminal negligence, and assault with a weapon. Police also located five children under the age of 10 years in what can best be described as a shocking environment and physical state. All five children were taken to the Stollery Hospital for examination. Three of those children were released and two were admitted with serious injuries. And police commend the babysitter for her actions, saying she may have prevented things from getting worse. Mm -hmm. Nancy, how are the victims doing? So the two children who were admitted to hospital have now been released and are expected to make a full recovery. All of the children are in safe homes where they get a lot of love and support. And that's Global Edmonton's Nancy Carlson. If you want to read more on this story, uh, the headline, Two Women Charged with Attempted Murder in Edmonton child abuse investigation and uh, you know this kind of smacks uh, or it's a similar story to the California shackling the latest on that by the way uh, California judge as of yesterday afternoon has barred the parents accused of torturing their children and shackling them to beds for months at a time from contacting the victims David and Louise Turpin appeared in court yesterday and this protective order signed during the hearing prohibits the couple from having any contact with their 13 children those siblings between 2 and 29 were rescued from their filthy home in Paris on January 14 the Turpins have pleaded not guilty to torture abuse and other charges these stories are are startling are they difficult to read I know as a new news reader you have to sort of Separate yourself from the stories. Uh, but when the camera turns off, turns off, is it difficult, Loren? I have to honestly say, even when the camera's on, there's been times I've had to pause because you're reading something and, and you just when you put yourself in that person's shoes, you can't help but think about how awful that might be. And on this story, you know, every time I hear something like this, allegations of abuse like this, you think, how, how long? How long did it go unnoticed? And, and if someone hadn't come into that home, where would these kids be now in, in both those cases? Loren McNabb with Macklin McGarry in the morning. 3M in the morning. Macklin McGarry and McNabb with you on this Thursday morning. Great to have Loren McNabb in the studio with us today and tomorrow. Her news chops, as we say in the business, are second to none. And we'll learn a little bit more about uh, Loren's journey from Manitoba afar and back again as we make our way through the morning. A story that's catching our attention is a poll that shows the provincial conservatives, well, their lead over the NDP and the popularity polls is 
shrinking, Loren? Yeah, Main Street Project just came up with this poll less than an hour ago, and it shows there's a three-point lead with the PCs over NDP right now. It's a, it's a pretty narrow lead. A thousand people were surveyed, and the margin of error is about three and a half percent, and so that means it's kind of, it could swing either way, and we haven't seen this kind of narrowing of that gap between the Conservatives and the NDP uh, since the Conservatives took over. They've had an overwhelming uh, popularity uh, support in the polls, and this latest one shows that that gap has extremely narrowed uh, Wab Canoe with 36.7 per- support, the PCs 39.6. So very interesting. And also interesting is that the progressive conservatives lead by 15 points among men, but the NDP have a nine point lead among women. And there was all that talk leading into, you know, when Wab Canoe was elected and the allegations made against him and the impact. Uh, that might have on that on that kind of vote and what women might how they would respond to that. So it's interesting to see how the demographics have shifted towards back towards the NDP for the women women of this province. We're in the middle of a term here. I don't know how much these numbers will concern the provincial conservatives, but they have to be uh, somewhat alarmed by this narrowing margin of popularity. I guarantee the line you'd hear if the premier was asked today that uh, polls just a snapshot in time, Greg, and doesn't reflect you know the the true feelings of the province. But you know the point would be. We're halfway through this term, and so I don't think anyone's going to look at this and take it too seriously, except for that it does show now that with an established leader at the party of the NDP, um, that that they can potentially make some inroads back to where they were before. Well, it looks as though we may have a race uh, coming up in the next provincial election. News out of Ontario in that election that comes up in June. We'll share with you a little bit later on as we make our way through the morning as well. A Michigan judge has become a bit of a folk hero because of her honest and down-to-earth comments while handing down her decision in a very high-profile sexual assault case involving some of the top female American gymnasts. Following day after day of wrenching victim impact statements, it was Larry Nasser's chance to speak. An acceptable apology to all of you is impossible to write and convey. I will carry your words with me for the rest of my days. The former sports doctor's plea deal called for a minimum of 25 to 40 years behind bars for sexual assault. But Judge Rosemary Aquilina, infuriated by a letter from Nasser in which he insisted he was a good doctor, took it much farther. Sir, I'm giving you 175 years, which is 2,100 months. I've just signed your death warrant. Some of Nasser's accusers spoke after the sentencing. We have persisted to speak our truth. And it just means so much to know that people are finally listening. Nasser admitted to molesting seven women under the camouflage of medical treatments, including Rachel Denhollander, whose complaint triggered Nasser's downfall. Larry sought out and took pleasure in little girls and women being sexually injured and violated because he liked it. In all, 156 women calling themselves an army described Nasser's abuse, their anger at his employers, and their long struggles to recover. But I also want to hear you tell me that you regret all the hurt you caused. Thank you. On top of the 60 years he's serving for child pornography, the sexual assault sentence makes certain Nasser will spend the rest of his life behind bars.
Kenneth Craig, CBS News, New York. Now, while handing down a 175-year sentence, Judge Rosemary Aquilina had a difficult time hiding her disdain for a letter Larry Nasser had written. The letter that seems to justify his actions towards more than 150 women and girls, pointing out the FBI found no issues with his conduct as a doctor. My medical treatments with the Olympic slash national team gymnastics were discussed as part of the plea. The FBI investigated them in 2015 and found nothing substantial because it was medical. Now they are seeking the media attention and financial rewards. Would you like to withdraw your plea? No, Your Honor. Because you are guilty, aren't you? Are you guilty, sir? I said my plea, exactly. Nasser pleaded guilty to sexually assaulting his victims during his tenure as a sports doctor with the U.S. Women's Olympic and National Gymnastic teams as well as Michigan State University. Some of the most heart-wrenching parts of the sentencing were the victim impact statements. You heard some of 18-year-old Emily Morales confronting Larry Nasser in our previous clip. Here is more of her tear-filled statement, which includes a heart-wrenching request. He told me to relax. This would help me feel better. I didn't know what he was doing, but for some reason, I felt tense, afraid, and exposed. He told me to relax. This would help me feel better. He talked about how my muscles were so tight and how he had to, quote, really work on me. He took away my innocence, and that is something I will never be able to get back. I did not want to admit that you betrayed and deceived me. I still believed in you and had sympathy for you. How could I have been so naive? How could a person that I thought to be so genuine and kind and caring be in fact the opposite? I will never understand. But now that I've said that, I want you to look at me. I believe in forgiveness, Larry. You and I are human beings. We make mistakes. Although you have hurt me, I want to forgive you and feel closure and move on to healing in my life. I want you to apologize to me right here. I want to forgive you, but I also want to hear you tell me that you regret all the hurt you caused. Thank you. <laughs> to USA Gymnastics, the United States Olympic Committee, Michigan State University, and John Gettert, I have one thing to say to you. Don't you ever let this happen again. Difficult to listen to that. And an argument, I think, can be made by listening to those four cameras in the courtroom. Yeah, wow, that's a debate for sure, because when you watch that, it adds a whole other layer of what these women were going through. It also shows the demeanor of 
the doctor. It shows the anger of the judge. And I think that's important for people to see. On the other hand, I often wonder if you brought a camera in the courtroom for those moments, would every victim want to get up there and be the face of that moment? And so it's just a debate to have, I think, on a case-by-case basis. But in this one, I think people needed to see that. And I think that they'd like to see a judge show that sort of disdain and anger towards uh, anyone who's been charged and, and convicted. Elton John announced yesterday that he's retiring from touring, but not before he embarks on one last global tour. And I thought the time is right to say thank you to all my fans around the world globally and then, you know, to say goodbye and then just to have a breather. I doesn't mean to say I'm still not going to be creative, but I'm not going to travel anymore. John, who is now 70 and a father of two, estimates the upcoming 300-date farewell. 300-date farewell tour seems somewhat disingenuous, but we can talk about that. The uh, Yellow Brick Road Tour will take approximately three years to complete. Brett McGarry, Greg Mackling with you, along with Loren McNabb, Mackling McGarry in the morning, and we've got Chantelie Vidal, Jeff Braun, and of course, the omnipresent behind the glass Jerry to discuss this we wanted to talk about which bands do you want to see before they uh <clears throat> pull the plug Jeff Braun I have a feeling you and I have the exact same artist on our I've wish list I've got a few and actually Elton John would be one of them so really? hopefully this tour brings him to Winnipeg because I've never seen him well I can't I imagine been here lots 300 dates and Winnipeg wouldn't be on oh, the list world's an awfully big place Greg I understand but <laughs> if you're listening Kevin Donnelly Winnipeg better be on the list that's all I have to say uh, about yeah, that you mentioned uh, earlier off mic before the BC boys uh, and that's obviously a no-go because they're down to two guys and they're just not doing it but uh Along that vein, some of their good friends from the rap game in the early 80s, and my pick would be Public Enemy. I'll just watch CB4 instead. (laughs) I'd like to see Public Enemy, though. I concur with you. Yeah. And also Slayer's on my list, and they're actually coming, we found out this week. So you should be able to take care of that one. Yeah, they just both jumped out of the booth there. Behind the glass, Jerry? Uh, Mine is a a slightly different vein. Um, There's... I, I've seen a lot of different artists in, in my time, and, and I try to get to the ones that I, I, I'm thinking are going to retire. I, I went and I saw Tony Bennett. I've seen Queen. Um, but I've never seen this guy, Mickey Gilly. Now the girls all get prettier at closing time. How they all begin to look like movie stars. <laughs> what? Nobody's seen this guy. <laughs> I don't even know who you're talking about. Is that wrong? Oh he God. actually owns the world's largest nightclub in Dallas. It's called Gillies. It Absolutely. holds like 10,000 people. And he was the first artist ever signed to Playboy Records back in the 70s. Uh, he was in Urban Cowboy. And when I was in Metropolis one time for the Superman celebration, they have a big casino there, and Mickey Gilly was going to be playing the next week. And I actually really considered staying an extra week in Metropolis just so that I could see Mickey Gilly. But then... <laughs> Uh, I was I was told that wasn't going to happen, and so I had to come back to Canada and uh, go back to work. You are an old soul, <laughs> Jerry Richardson. <laughs> Loren McNabb, you'd kind of jumped when Jeff said Slayer. Are you going to be at that show? 
I'd like to go to that. Yeah, I mean, when I when I was growing up, that was a band I was certainly into. I don't know if I'd go now. The, the problem is when you go back to sort of those bands that you loved, it's never quite the same. I remember seeing Motley Crue in concert a few years ago. and uh, That had a lot less to do with you and a lot more to do with them. Believe <laughs> yeah, me. No, I know. <laughs> so I sound and the same thing. He had to hold the mic out to the crowd. It was, girls, girls, <sighs> take it away. And I was like, oh, it's really not how I remember this being. But yeah, I think I'd go see Slayer. Vince Neil out of breath? Yeah. You yeah. must be kidding me. No, he just didn't have the finish, if I could put it that way. Yeah. Now, Shanley Vidal, you have, uh, you know, you've made it no secret that you have seen many bands in your time. Uh, is there one that you have not seen that you want to see? Well, obviously, it'd be Morrissey, right? Is 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 all Morrissey? The Morrissey, okay. and which is why I'm excited about going to Manchester next week. But uh, before I I uh, fell in love with Morrissey's music, I fell in love with Michael Ball. You think I've sold out? Dead right, I've sold out. I've just been waiting for the right offer: comfortable quarters, regular rations, twenty-four hour, five-star room service. And I'm sure nobody's heard of him. Is that is that from Hamilton? No, no, no. he I. I Sounds like it. I, I, I love musicals, and growing up, I just fell in love with musicals. And Michael Ball was in uh, Les Miserables, and he was actually the original Marius character, and he was in several other musicals. He's getting a little bit uh, long in the tooth now, and so I would like to see him once in my life, even if he's not that great, not as great as he used to be. Just like to see him once perform. You mentioned Morrissey in Manchester. Is, is, are you going to see a Morrissey show no, in I Manchester? Am, I am not going to see a Morrissey oh, show okay. in Manchester, but I'm hoping to do a Morrissey walking tour if uh, if I can talk my boyfriend into it. And you knock know. on his door and uh, say hello? <laughs> is he live in Manchester? I, I, I don't think he lives in Manchester anymore. I, I don't know. McGarry? I can't think of one. Really? I really yeah, can't. Who do you want? Keanu Reeves. He's got a band. He's your favorite guy. Oh, come on. Dog Star. <laughs> Keanu Reeves. Does, he, does he still have that band? <laughs> I must. don't know. Uh, how about Russell Crowe and the Phone Throwers? Yeah, no, he's uh, the thirty odd foot of Grunt is him. That's the name of his band. That's the name of his band. They're Australian. Oh my God. Okay. And who else? Didn't they play here once? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in Minnedosa, we saw all the great heavy metal yeah. rock bands at the Rock in the Fields in Minnedosa. And they the still rock have a great fest. rock fest. They there, do. Yeah. It's a little smaller, but like one year, on Friday night, I think Def Leppard was there. Saturday night was Sammy Hagar, or some orders. Uh, the order doesn't really matter because I don't honestly remember. Yeah. I just know I saw them all in one mm-hmm. weekend. Foreigner. It was uh, Loverboy and all the Canadian bands and everything. Uh, 20,000 people plus. Uh, that, those were good times. But I still haven't seen... Bruce Springsteen. When the dance, you're gonna have to travel for that one. I know he's not coming here, is he? I don't think so. I, I, we were apparently really close back in the in the '90s, and uh, the Winnipeg Arena was booked for another event, and we missed out on having Springsteen. Donnelly, you gotta get him here. You gotta find a way to get Bruce Springsteen to Winnipeg. The morning after uh, the Dancing in the Dark video was on Friday night videos. Courtney Cox, right, gets up on stage with Bruce Springsteen. My mom sat and watched that video for seven hours (laughs) and kept rewinding that song over and over again. And to imagine I never got sick of that song is strong enough endorsement to say that I 
love Bruce So would you travel to go see him? Like, how far would you go to see that concert? I would go, but Minneapolis or St. Paul, I obviously. I flew to Calgary easy. to see him once. Yeah, mm-hmm. I would go, I would go, I think, anywhere in North America to see him. Text us your bucket list artists at 204-780-6868. We've already got Metallica, Bruce Springsteen, and Eric Clapton from some of our listeners. Text us at 204-780-6868. McGarry, McNabb in the morning, 680 CJOB. Special book is being launched this weekend. It's called Sweet Without Sugar. Sounds like me. Hmm. It's a children's book about a girl with autism who learns to get out of her comfort zone. That's, I, I have all the sugar thanks to the Timbits that uh, Loren McNabb brought. Thank You're you, welcome. by the way. You're welcome. Uh, the book is part of the Literary Inclusion Project, which is an initiative that focuses on helping to make sure the topic of intellectual disability has a place in children's literature. We are joined by Tamika Reed, who is the author of Sweet Without Sugar and founder of the Literary Inclusion Project and a student at uh, Red River College's Creative Communications, of which I am an alum, class of 2004. So Tamika, hello there. Welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. We're excited to have you. We've all just taken a quick glance at this book that you've put together and uh, really well done. So tell us uh, what in uh, sort of a snapshot about what is Sweet Without Sugar. Okay, Sweet Without Sugar, as you mentioned, is about a child. Her name is Sophie. She's nine years old and she has autism. Um, so she she's really used to focusing on her daily routine, but eventually um, her stuffed kitty cat, who's named Sugar, gets damaged. And so she has to figure out how to go about her day without doing the regular things that she does. And for some children with autism, it's uh, something that's very difficult to do, but she manages to do it and she finds out that she can have a sweet day without sugar. It's a story that's familiar to people who work with kids who live with autism, and it's sort of the impetus of where you came up with the idea for the book, because you work with a lot of uh, kids in an inclusion program at the YMCA. Tell yes, us a little I bit do. about that and, what, and what, why that sort of prompted you to create this book. Well, I came up with this idea because there's so many uh, students at the after-school program that I work with who love reading. Um, there's a library section, and I hang out with them there all day. And I noticed that none of the characters in the books that I was reading to them had anybody with an intellectual disability. So there was nobody really that represented them. And these children, they they understand. And I thought that I should create someone that they could relate to because I think that it's important. This whole idea of inclusion is a powerful one. And, you know, I think if we all look back, uh, being a little bit older than you, Tamika, I know that in my school, the classrooms were, they were essentially segregated from individuals, between individuals with a learning uh, disability and, uh, and and the rest of the school. It's incredible. I'm sure you grew up in a completely different environment where there is that integration. Yeah, no, that's like you said it exactly. Um, and I just think that uh, people could be doing more and that it's not too hard to be inclusive. If you just think creatively, you could find ways to make sure that everybody's represented and that everybody has fun. As far as thinking creatively, sorry, Loren, uh, <laughs> the book itself, um, which, by the way, the launch is happening this Sunday, January 28th, 3 p.m. at the Millennium Library. The artwork in the book, you, the process uh, that went into that is quite creative. Tell us about that. Yeah, well, um, it was a collaborative piece. So the students at the after school program that I work with, they helped me create it. So they went and they drew pictures and 
um, I went and scanned the photos and I used Photoshop to uh, collaborate the images together. So uh, it's kind of like a collage and it kind of looks cool and there's textures and stuff like that. But I just thought that it'd be really important to make sure that this project was as inclusive as possible. So even with the images, the children helped me. Their conversations we're having all the time at home with our own children of a five and a seven year old. And these are things that come up when they come home from school about kids in their own classroom. So when when someone's reading this to their child, what do you hope they sort of take from it? Well, I just hope that um, they understand that people are a little bit different, but that doesn't mean that you can't um, interact with them. It doesn't mean that they should be um, excluded or left out. I just I, I just really hope that people understand and that it's a conversation um, that could just happen. And I just hope that this could be um, a conversational piece to open up a broader discussion. I think there's every chance, Lorraine, that the parents are going to learn more than the kids from reading this book. <laughs> Tamika, any chance of that in your mind? Uh, hopefully. <laughs> We're always learning. Yeah, I, I often think when I read things to my kids about how it's good for me, too, because you struggle sometimes to find the language and to explain it so that a kid can understand about all the differences that are uh, in their classroom and how they can also just um, uh, accept those and live with those and, and learn from those, too. Right. I think that's really powerful. Uh, before we go, uh, there is a, a spot online where we can learn more about the Literary Inclusion Project. Where is that? Um, if you go on Facebook and search at the Literary Inclusion Project, I'd also like to mention as well that you could contact me too if you guys could put up my email at all. Uh, you could contact me if you'd like me to come around to schools for I Love to Read Month. That's another portion of my project. Um, so if there's any school divisions out there who want a guest speaker or reader, that would be me, please. Just reach out to either gmac <laughs> yeah. at cjob.com or brett at cjob.com and we will get you Tamika's email address. Tamika Reed, off author of Sweet Without Sugar, the book launch this Sunday, January 28th, Millennium Library at 3 p.m. And congratulations on doing this, by the way. This is a really great effort on your part. Well done. Thank you. Yes, it is time for the Small Town Salute, brought to you by South Beach Casino and Resort, where service sets them apart, southbeachcasino.ca. And where's Jeff Braun? He should be in here for this. This week, we are headed south to Altona. And we are joined by Eric Hildebrand, who is the recreation programmer for the town of Altona. Mr. Hildebrand, welcome to 680 CJOB. Hi, Good morning. Thank you very much for doing this. So the Winter Carnival, first let's talk about the Winter Carnival before we get into some generalities about Altona. The Winter Carnival, when is it happening? Right, so it's taking place this Saturday, January 27th. And what can we expect if we want to head down to Altona to visit the Winter Carnival? Right, we've got a, a bunch of activities taking place. Uh, the, the Basically, the day starts off with an all-you-can-eat pancake breakfast at our community centre, and then basically we move over to the Buffalo Creek Nature uh, Pond, which is an extension of the Centennial Park in Altona, at 10 o'clock in the morning. And we have a full slate of activities that runs basically between 10 a.m. and 12 noon. Um, And then there's a a soup and pie lunch that takes place back at the community center. And following that, we finish the uh, afternoon off with a family movie. 
Eric, it's Greg Mackling here. Jeff Braun, uh, who reads the news here and is a big part of our team here at 680 CJOB, raves about growing up in Altona. Can you tell us what's so awesome about growing up in Altona? <laughs> right. Well, it's a, it's a nice-sized uh, community. We're just over 4,000 people, and we have some excellent facilities, um, which I mentioned earlier, the Buffalo Creek Nature Pond, an extension of the uh, Altona Centennial Park, uh, this is then now the 17th annual Winter Carnival, so basically uh, the nature pond is uh, frozen, obviously, in the winter now, and it's cleared and used for ice skating, and uh, there's a, quite a large hill that uh, we will have toboggan, uh, toboggan race, cardboard toboggan races on. There's a warm-up shack there. Uh, there's a lot of community spirit in, in Altona. Um, people like to get outside. I know we've come through a bit of a deep freeze, but uh, the weather's definitely trended in the right direction recently. And so uh, this is an opportunity for families with young children to get outside, head over to the nature pond, um, bring their skates. We're going to have pond hockey happening. We're going to be doing some curling on the ice. We're going to be playing ice croquet. There's scavenger hunts. We have horse and sleigh rides happening uh, there's a candy scramble for the little kids on the ice. We're going to have our local senior men's hockey team, uh, the Altona Maroons, and the uh, high school hockey team, the W.C. Miller Aces. They're going to be bringing out uh, a bunch of players to play hockey with all the kids. Um, yeah, it's, it's just a really good community event. Eric, you mentioned toboggan races, all cardboard, it sounds like, with a couple categories, fastest, most creative. Tell me a bit more about that, because in a small town, I'm guessing that gets a little competitive. I grew up in a small town, and I know once you get these carnivals going, people sort of have a tradition year after year to be the one that beats out their friend. Definitely. There's prizes available, uh, and it's not that anyone's walking away with uh, huge prizes, but I think uh, that definitely adds to the uh, competitive spirit, and people have come up with all types of creations. Uh, there's cardboard toboggans that uh, resemble cars, um, and the next, uh, and and you know, you go from creative entries to basic entries. Uh, a computer box, an empty computer box. I've seen uh, two or three year olds with a helmet strapped onto their head, pushed down by their mom and dad, and they go uh, whizzing down. Um, that's a lot of fun. People really seem to spend some time putting together their creation. Eric, what you mentioned ice croquet. Can you just tell me a little bit more about that? Does that involve wearing skates or uh, like, uh, what do you call the, those? What's the other game? Broom? broom ball shoes? Yes, thank you. No, broom ball shoes, no. Uh, a portion of the pond is uh, maintained and then flooded and scraped for hockey. Uh, but some of the, the rest of the pond area is, is just a frozen much like any other uh, body of water, like a frozen lake. So, uh, yeah, I mean, everyone's geared up in winter boots and that type of thing. So we're just going to set up a a couple of croquet courses on the ice portion. And uh, no, you don't need to be wearing skates, winter boots. uh, Everyone will just be walking the course. Eric Hildebrand is recreation programmer for the town of Altona. And no conversation about Altona would be complete without taking a shot at Winkler, from what we understand, (laughs) Eric. Oh, sure. Well, uh, the rivalry community, uh, it happens to be a bit of a natural rivalry with sports, I would say. Um, but outside of that, uh, yeah, that would be the, the, the natural rivalry with high school teams, uh, sports teams, and, and other sports teams. That's, that's certainly is, a rivalry. Is there a carnival rivalry, you know, where you try to outdo one another in the nope. winter? You should maybe start <laughs> I, that. I that would be fun. So. 
It would be, but uh, I don't think that there's any uh, carnival carnival rivalry. No. Well, Erica, your your diplomacy in the matter is uh, to be commended uh, compared to our Jeff Braun, uh, who has no problem expressing his outright disgust for Winkler. So. Right. Uh, hey, we haven't asked you for those who are not familiar with Altona. How does one get there? Where is it? Right. Well, we are one hour south. Uh, I always tell people we're one hour south of the uh, perimeter. Uh, basically traveling down Highway 75 and then turning uh, at the uh, Highway 14 junction uh, towards Rosenfeld. And at, at Rosenfeld, you're simply turning south on Highway 30. And, uh, yeah, we're easy to find, uh, easy to get to. And, uh, yeah, people would be encouraged to come on down. Uh, like I said, it's, it's, uh, it's basically a one-day event uh, geared towards families with young children it's, a, it's put on by the town of Altona, obviously, in collaboration with uh, several different community organizations. So, And the weather's, like I said, it's trending in the right uh, direction. We should have a really nice day, and we're looking forward to it. And one more question here, and I'm, this, hopefully this isn't an ambush, but is, I'm just re- sort of remembering off the top of my head, isn't there a connection with uh, Harry Potter and your town as far as uh, books being printed there? <clears throat> yes, uh, Friesen's Corporation is a uh, book printer here in Altona, uh, quite a large company, actually. And they certainly were involved with the printing of, of Harry Potter um, back in its, its uh, release time period there and the popularity. And that was uh, quite an event. I know that the employees were kept to secrecy, if you will, in terms of uh, not releasing any information about what the book content uh, had and, and that type of thing. So... That was uh, definitely a, a, a big deal, if you will, for the local printing company here. All together, Altona is the slogan. Eric Hildebrand has been our guest on Small Town Salute today. Eric, have a great weekend and enjoy the uh, Winter Carnival on Saturday. Thanks so much for this. Sounds good. Thanks for having me. All right, Eric Hildebrand, recreation pr- programmer for the town of Altona. Small Town Salute once again brought to you by South Beach Casino and Resort, where service sets them apart, South Beach Casino. Dot CA. One, two, three. Now it is time for Three Things with Shanalee Vidal. And today it's Three Things in the News that You May Have Missed. Good morning, Shanalee. Good morning, Brett. Good morning, Greg. Good morning, Loren. Yes, there, we had so much news going on, so we couldn't quite fit everything in there. There's a few neat stories. Yeah, you found some of these stories that are just wild. So yeah. let's hear this first one. So the first one, Chinese scientists say they have broken the barrier of cloning primates. Oh. That's right, cloning. It's a brave new world. Researchers used the cloning method that produced Dolly the sheep back in 1996 to create two healthy monkeys. Oh, they're so cute. They are. They're adorable. <laughs> now, in principle, they say this feat means... Humans can be cloned. Oh, gosh. And Michigan State University scientist Jose Sibeli says mainstream scientists generally oppose making human babies by cloning, but it is still a debate. This, in a sense, will will start the conversation again about whether we want to use cloning as a way of reproduction in the future or not. Yeah, kind of, the whole conversation kind of makes me a little uncomfortable. because The phrase generally oppose mm-hmm. is not strong enough. <laughs> you know, you just, you know, it's it's highly unethical, but you know, someday it's going to happen. They probably, I bet you they've already done it. Yeah, if Hollywood's taught us anything, for sure it's happening. And so, of course, uh, PETA, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, is condemning the monkey cloning, and they call it a horror show. Well, yeah. Yeah. 
But if just, I am you and you are me, then who am I? <laughs> <laughs> Behind the glass, Jerry, what is that from? I don't know, it's Arnold Schwarzenegger cloning movie. I mean, he's done like a million of them, hasn't he? <laughs> Nailed it. Well done, Jerry. Thank you for that. Now I need to look that up. I want to. I don't think I've seen that film. What's the second thing, Shanley? Okay, well, the second thing, especially for people looking to take a break from the cold, maybe go on a nice sunny getaway. All of us? Some of us. Well, for me, going to a... a, a yeah. Going to a less cold place yeah, okay, fair next enough. week. Probably no sunshine, but that's <laughs> so another conversation. You want to make sure that you're packing your sunscreen, of course, but here's something you probably never thought of. You're going to want to slather it on before you even get on the plane. Come on. Yeah, seriously. No way. It's true. A growing number of British deter- deter- uh, d- dermatologists are urging people to apply sunscreen before they fly because this follows reports that UVA rays are stronger, more dangerous at higher elevations. Okay, but the the plane's not a convertible. But the windows, you see. They're saying those rays can penetrate through those plastic windows. And it's funny because this this doctors are actually pointing to a study that came out uh, three years ago in a 2015 study in JAMA Dermatology. And it found pilots and cabin crews showed an increased risk of melanoma due to the UV exposure. Is there no safe place for me as I sit here as a redhead with the palest of skin? (laughs) Like, I just... I want to get on the plane. I put sunscreen on every day, and now you're telling me i got to get on a plane and double up? Like, come on. I think you're going to have to wrap yourself in cellophane or something similar, Loren. No. Yeah, I can see it, too, because I got I actually got a sunburn on the way out to Kingswood and LaSalle because it's about a half-hour drive. The sun on my left and my arm was all burnt and my half of my face was burnt. You it looked like Two-Face. You didn't have your window down? You didn't have your arm out of the window? No, not at 110 kilometers so an hour. So through the window, you got a sunburn. Yeah. Oh, yeah, so I can see that uh, if I can, if that happens on the ground, I could see it up way up in the air. So that's interesting. What's the third thing? So Shelley? the third thing, and it's funny because I could have just done three things on entertainment because we have the Murphy Brown reboot. Which oh is, yeah, I'm super looking forward to. Mm. Uh, we have Meryl Streep joining the cast of Big Little Lies. Right, just finished season one. It's excellent. Mm-hmm. And so it's funny because I was going to talk about Murphy Brown, and then I was going to talk about Meryl Streep. Then this one just caught my attention. Okay, uh, another series inspired by Canadian author Mark. Margaret Atwood's writing is on the horizon. Okay. Anonymous content and Paramount Television say they've acquired the rights to develop a series based on Atwood's dystopic trilogy, Oryx and Crake, mm. The Year of the Flood and McAdam. If you haven't read those books, read them. They're very, very good. And so the trilogy follows a small group of survivors reeling from a global pandemic that's wiped out most of humanity. Sounds very inspiring. It does, doesn't it? So no <laughs> word on when it's going to happen or when it's going to be put together. But of course, Atwood has been such a hit. She's had a couple of shows and uh, um, The Handmaid's Tale just picked up a whole bunch of awards and you can attest to it Brett now that it's an amazing show. Yeah, Handmaid's Tale uh, cleaned up at the SAG Awards, it cleaned up at the Golden Globes, at the Emmys, it is sensational and uh, Alias Grace as well getting uh, a lot of uh, critical acclaim. Uh, Handmaid's Tale season 2 by the way will debut in April on Bravo. Uh, so yeah, it's a, it, I'm sure a lot of Hollywood producers are clamoring to get more of Margaret Atwood's work on the air, Shanley. The best thing about Margaret Atwood getting all this attention is I now no longer confuse Margaret Atwood with Margaret Lawrence, oh, who of no. course is from Meepawah. That's right. Which <laughs> is a rival of Minnedosa, just so I can throw I that in. I can't That's believe right. you got the two confused in the first well, place. just in their names. and then, Oh, Margaret, Margaret, Margaret Atwood. Margaret Lawrence from wrote Me- the Stone no, Angel. That's right. No, she's not. She's from, no, she's from Ontario. <laughs> oh, you disappoint me, Greg. Yeah, yeah. Well. yeah hey, well. Maybe, so maybe Jack- we, need a, we need a book club. <laughs> yeah. Well, how did this turn into? <laughs> Pick 
Don Greg hour. Gee whiz. Thank you, Shanley. <laughs> Three things with Shanley Vidal heard every day after the 8 o'clock news on the 680 CJOB. Greg Mackling here. Brett McGarry to my right. Where is that Loren McNabb? She's got to learn the clock around here. McNabb, get in here. <laughs> You're late for duty. Oh, my gosh. Uh-huh. Sitting there casually having a coffee. Yeah, that does happen oh from boy. time to time. Thanks for tuning in, spending some of your morning with us. Loren is uh, kind enough. I don't know how you got talked into this and wrangled into spending time with us this morning, but we're glad you did. It went something like, can I skip the morning routine and getting my kids dressed and dropping them off at school and traded it in for a nice after school, glad to see mommy moment? And I said... <laughs> Yeah, that sounds good. Two days in a row. Loren will be back tomorrow. Back in 1995, I had the opportunity to go and work at Charlotte Pass Ski Resort in Australia. And filling out the paperwork, I was getting all my ducks in a row, as they say, to get my work visa to go down under and spend a year working, uh, well, six months at a ski resort and then uh, come back to uh, Canada and continue working at Silver Star Ski Resort. Well, in filing the paperwork, I was devastated to learn that I was going to turn 26 years old while I was away, which made me ineligible to go and work in Australia at that time. And um, there are lots of people who dream of going to Australia, to New Zealand, to Great Britain to work, and visas are an issue. And imagine jetting off to New Zealand for four months each winter without needing to apply for a visa or heading to the United Kingdom to work for a decade without having to sort through work permits and residency applications. That is the future being proposed by Kanzuk International, a non-profit organization advocating freedom of movement between Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and the United Kingdom. Tell us more. We are joined live on 680 CJOB by James Skinner, who is the chief executive of Kansas International. Mr. Skinner, good morning to you, sir. Good morning, and thank you for having me on the show. So where have we reached you, by the way? Uh, We're based in Vancouver, so we're two hours behind you. So why these four countries in particular, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and the United Kingdom? There's probably an obvious connection, but let's start there. Well, the main reason is simply because the uh, the outstanding social and economic similarities between these countries. I mean, just, just to you know, name a couple, we have we share the same head of state, being Queen Elizabeth II. Uh, we have very good economic growth rates, very good GDP per capita rates, uh, excellent um, y- you know measures of tackling uh, cyber terrorism, excellent measures of tackling security issues from cross border activity. Uh, we, we share the common law. We, we, we share Westminster-style parliamentary democracy. We, we you know, each have respect for you know, human rights and the rule of law. So there's multiple similarities between these countries as to why free movements would work. And um, it, it's something that we're, you know, that we emphasize in our campaign to make people and to help people understand as to why these four countries would be exemplary in sharing free movement protocols between each other. So explain that free movement. What would what would be the best case scenario then for Canadians looking to work in those countries and vice versa? Well, it's, it's exactly what we're campaigning for being the best case scenario, as, as we feel it would be um, for Canada and the UK to sign a session agreement uh, with uh, Australia and New Zealand, because um, not a lot of people know this, but Australia and New Zealand currently engage in free movement through what's called the Trans-Tasman Travel Agreement. Um, and that allows New Zealand citizens to work in Australia and vice versa for Australian citizens to work in New Zealand. Uh, the stipulation in that, though, is that it's not similar to free movement like we have in the European Union. It's actually controlled free movement 
whereby citizens have to comply with security, uh, health and character requirements. For example, if you are on a terrorist watch list, you are not permitted to uh, travel under the Trans-Tasman Travel Agreement. Similarly, if you've been um, you know, convicted of a serious uh, criminal offence and imprisoned for longer than six months, you cannot move freely between those countries. Um, and there's numerous other stipulations like that as well. So whereas we're promoting free movement between these countries, citizens would have to comply with um, health and you know, character requirements, thereby ensuring that there's a safeguard with the free movement protocols that we're advocating. So, James, does that 26-year uh, uh, limitation still exist, the one that I outlined in my uh, negative experience in trying to, to go to Australia once upon a time? <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's fortunately they've increased it slightly. So I believe now it's 31 inclusive. Oh, of course um, they yeah, have. So, <laughs> so I, I, I feel you old. missed out there, unfortunately. So I'm sorry about that. But uh, they have increased it to 31. Um, but, you know, what we're advocating is that for anybody of any age to move freely under these protocols. So uh, there's hope yet. Now you have an online petition. Where can we go to find that? Uh, that's available just by searching uh, Kanzuk Petition uh, via Google. It's also available by our website, which is www.kanzukinternational.com. And uh, people are welcome to read through it. Uh, and if they agree with it, add their name to the petition and uh, help us reach an even greater number than what we've got already. What sort of concerns do people raise with this initiative? Because I would imagine, I mean, it all sounds great, but I would imagine as well that there could be some potential roadblocks and things that people uh, raise an eyebrow about. Oh, of course. And, you know, a progressive, you know, new initiative like this always raises concerns. And that's completely understandable. And, you know, that's what we're here to help with is to help clarify those concerns. I think the biggest concern that we would have would be, um, you know, the, the security issues. You know, as terrorism is growing in the 21st century, would free movement, you know, increase the, the possibility and the potential for terrorism to occur in these countries? And it's a very fair question, but the reality is, is that it would not. Uh, two reasons. One that I've already mentioned being the, uh, the Trans-Tasman Travel Agreement between Australia and New Zealand does not permit free movement uh, between those countries if someone is on, for example, a terrorist watch list, um, if they've been imprisoned for a significant amount of time, if they have a serious criminal conviction, uh, or if they have a serious health concern. The other matter as well is that these four countries um, also engage in a very highly effective intelligence alliance known as the Five Eyes Intelligence. Uh, this being a military human and signals cooperation between Canada, Australia, New Zealand, the UK, along with the United States of America. And uh, the intelligence sharing between these five countries is so effective that it would make it virtually impossible for any um, you know, you know, cross-border terrorism to occur between these countries. So there's plenty of safeguards in place to guarantee that, you know, uh, terrorism and any cross-border criminal activity would not occur between these countries if free movement was implemented. Where does that uh, where does that petition live? One more time, James, before we let you go. Uh, you can access it uh, just by searching Kanzuk Petition um, on Google. And it's also available at our website, www.kanzukinternational.com. That's C-A-N-Z-U-K. James Skinner, Chief Executive of Kanzuk International, joining us. And when we spoke about this last week, Brett, I got an email from Shelley who says, uh, Hi, Greg. I did get to go to Australia for a year on the under-26 work visa. Many years ago, I was a bartender in a, in a manly hotel. Uh, I, I think Manly is a place, not a, a, a thing. <laughs> amazing, amazing experience. As an almost 50-year-old, I'd love to be able to go back and be able to work again.
And we're actually, we've been getting uh, pictures from one of our listeners, Jeff. He's in Australia right now, and he's been taunting us with pictures of all of the beautiful <laughs> weather that he is experiencing. So once again, thanks to James Skinner, Chief Executive of Kanzuk International, joining us live on 680 CJOB. We are uh, looking to, forward to the HSC Hope to Life Radiothon presented by Merrick Holmes on February 2nd. It is a day where we share stories of hope and healing from Manitobans who, like so many of us, received exceptional care at HSC Winnipeg. Research and medical teams also provide insight into their work at Manitoba's flagship hospital and how it is transforming the lives of patients and their families. One of the members of the HSC medical team is Debbie Swan, who has been a nurse for 40 years, 25 of them at HSC, and she joins us now in studio live on 680 CJOB. Debbie, welcome. Thank you so much for paying us a visit today. Thank you for having me. Well, and thank you for your service. 40 years as a nurse. I'm looking at you and this is not computing. Exactly, yes. Did you lie about your age to get into nursing school? Tell no. us a little bit about, about your history and, and what drew you to nursing. What drew me to nursing? I can't honestly say. It's just something that as a young girl, I always felt that that was something I wanted to do as a profession and hence never never really looked back on it. What kind of care do you provide right now? Where, where are you work? Like, what do you do? Well, um, let's start out with, I started my career at Health Sciences Centre. And the majority of uh, the care I provided there was in the intensive care unit and emergency department. And over those years, I saw some absolutely miraculous uh, events occur. And I was part of a lot of firsts. And then after a period of time, I left Health Sciences Center and I went to work in a rural hospital. However, as time went by, uh, my sister, who was also a nurse and was working at Health Science, said it was time to come back home. And so I did. And uh, for the last 10 years, I've been back at Health Science and quite proud of it. Tell us a little bit about the Center for Surgical Innovation that's there because you talked about all the things you saw, the advances along the way in your career, and this this center is one of them in terms of the, the kind of cutting-edge technology and the things it can do for people. Exactly. Um, the Center for Surgical in- Intervention did not exist when I was first there, and now to see the uh, transition and the services that have, you know, have been provided over the years And now having a family member that actually utilize those services just really hits home as to um, uh, how our uh, technology has advanced and uh, through all the generous donations and the hard work of the foundation, uh, what health science uh, is is now today. Debbie Swan is our guest. She has been a nurse for 40 years, 25 of them at Health Sciences Centre. Uh, hello to everyone on Facebook Live, by the way, joining us on the 680 CJOB Facebook page. Now, Debbie, you just referenced one of your own family members had to use the services at the hospital. Uh, who was that family member and what happened? Well, it was uh, uh, my dad, Victor Stutsky, and uh, we found ourselves in the position of having to utilize health science. I'm sorry, it's bringing tears to my eyes because it kind of just uh, brings back a lot of, of uh, uh, memories of that day. Anyways, um, I I think what we have to perhaps to give the, the listeners uh, some insight as to uh, 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 the story I have to tell, I have to tell you a little bit about my dad for starters. 
Uh, my dad is 88 years old and always a very active man. Uh, as a young man, he owned his own business. He was an auto mechanic by trade, but an outdoorsman by heart. And uh, uh, in his younger years, he um, uh, flitted away during his so-called work hours, because he owned his own business, to pursue his pilot's license. And uh, uh, unbeknownst to my mom, one day he comes home and he says, we're going to my graduation. And mom says, graduation of what? (laughs) Well, I got my pilot's license. (laughs) And uh, On on the sly. (laughs) On the sly, he got his pilot's license. And uh, uh, from there... He, uh, uh, over the years, uh, worked his way up by rebuilding airplanes bit by bit from, from, a, from a small one to a larger one to the airplane of his dreams. And uh, he always uh, enjoyed the outdoors and had a fishing camp up north and would go there fishing. And they had a cottage in Lake of the Woods and he'd hunt. And that was just the kind of man he was. And even up until... And, and, uh, after he retired from and sold his business, he went to work for one of the major airline companies as a sheet metal mechanic. My word. Um, and retired from there and then just kind of kept pursuing his dream of, of uh, his fishing camps and rebuilding his airplanes for other people and rebuilding floats and, and working, working up until just this past summer. Uh, so at 88 years old, he was still puttering in his garage, redoing his floats on airplanes and, you know, for, for other people and and uh, quite an active man. So for him to fall ill was absolutely unexpected. Debbie Swan is our guest. She is a nurse, has been for 40 years, 25 of them at HSC. The HSC Hope to Life Radiothon presented by Merrick Holmes is taking place February 2nd. It is a day where we share stories of hope and healing from Manitobans like so many of us have received exceptional care at HSC. And we will continue this chat. Mackling, McGarry and McNabb on 680 CJOB. I'm Brett McGarry. He is Greg Mackling. And then Loren McNabb from Global Television is here with us today and tomorrow. And hello to everyone on Facebook Live joining us right now on the 680 CJOB Facebook page. We are talking about the HSC Hope to Life Radiothon presented by Merrick Holmes, which is taking place on 680 CJOB February 2nd. It is a day where we share stories of hope and healing from Manitobans who, like so many of us, received wonderful care at HSC. And research and medical teams also provide insight into their work at Manitoba's flagship hospital, how it is transforming the lives of patients and their families. And one of the members of the HSC family is Debbie Swan, who has been a nurse for 40 years, 25 of them at HSC. And we've been visiting with Debbie off air on Facebook Live, and Debbie was telling us about her dad and his incredible love of aviation, Victor Stutsky. And before... You told us all about your dad. We were just about to learn what happened uh, during Thanksgiving weekend of 2017, but I agreed with you when you started telling me about your dad. It was important that we get some context because some people here 88 years old and there's a, oh boy, you know, 88, he's had a good life, right, Loren? But we, you know, we come from good stock ourselves, right? And I was telling, I was telling uh, Debbie about my 92-year-old grandpa and the fact that you know, when people hear that he died at 92, it's like, well, he had a good run. He had a good life. Sometimes you need context, and you gave that to us. So can you take us back? I know it's 
it, it's overwhelming and it was upsetting for you, but I think it's important to set the scene of what happened that Thanksgiving, that October weekend back in 2017. Certainly. It was Monday morning of the long weekend, uh, about 5 o'clock in the morning, and my mom gave me a call. And when you're you, when the phone rings at five o'clock in the morning, it kind of sets no. it kind of sets your 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 heart to stop for a moment. And uh, what my mom essentially told me was, Dad had gotten up to go to the washroom, and collapsed, and was on the floor, unable to move his left side, and was not and and was garbling his words. Ambulance had been called, and he was en route into. Uh, into Winnipeg. They live just north of Winnipeg, out in St. Andrews. So um, he was initially taken to uh, the Seven Oaks Hospital and quickly transferred to Health Science Centre thereafter. Um, he, By the time I got to the hospital, um, Dad was already in the emergency department of um, uh, Health Science and was in the CT scanner. Um, and that's a really important part of the what we call the Stroke 25 protocol. Um, patients who, or who present with a suspected stroke um, may or may not qualify for what we call the clot buster medication, TPA. And it can only be given if the stroke is due to a clot in the brain as opposed to a bleed in the brain. And Dad, uh, as a result of his scan, he was a clot in the brain and uh, was a candidate for TPA. Dr. Gruda, who was the neurologist uh, uh, on on call that day, was present in the the recess room and... uh, you know, gave us word that, yes, he qualified for the clot buster medication. And what his next plan was, was to contact interventional radiology. And interventional radiology is another segment of that stroke protocol, whereby um, potentially uh, the the team can uh, manually extract the clot from the brain as well. So... uh, uh, Standing back and looking at the whole process in the uh, in the emergency department, um, and and looking at it from the other side as a, as a family member, I was just absolutely uh, pleasantly shocked, surprised, pleased with the um, uh, rapid response and how things were happening. Well, you've been a nurse for 40 years for people who are just tuning in and you've been at HSC for decades. It's one thing to have worked there and know the protocols and how things are supposed to go. But then when you find yourself there and it's your dad and you're hoping it goes as quickly as possible because you know time is of the essence here. Is there one thing that stood out for you as you're sitting there watching doctors, nurses, everyone rally around your father that made you think, wow, this team is really incredible? I was really proud of it. Um... Because you know you, when you're when you're, it's different when you're part of that team providing the service, and when you're actually uh, a family member expecting those uh, uh, expected those guidelines and and those outcomes. You know, uh, we strive for that, right? And um, 
the the infusion of the clot bust. Now, this is another important part to to kind of think about. This is Monday of a long weekend, and that interventional team is on call. They are not in hospital, and time is of the essence when when you're providing that sort of treatment. And the infusion of the clot buster medication wasn't even totally infused because it has to run over an hour. And that medication wasn't even completely infused. And that team was calling for my dad to come up to the suite. And I think back, um, I was just amazed at how fast everything was happening, even on a long weekend Monday with people not in house. Um, So dad was taken up to the interventional radiology suite, which is uh, a suite in itself um, that uh, my understanding really is that it's only one of two in North America. Um, And it's only thanks to the uh, foundation and the funding that has occurred over all these years that we actually have that suite. And what it is is... um, it's it's a room where um, the interventional radiology team can do angiograms, can extract the clots from the brains. Um, that suite also has a, an MRI machine in it, and adjacent to that is a surgical suite. So the combination of an angio suite, an MRI machine, and a, 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 a neurosurgical uh operating room suite allows this MRI machine, if need be, to move into either one of those rooms and do MRIs live while operations or procedures are occurring. In the past, you would have to leave, you would have to take the patient out of that operating room and to have MRI and ensure that the that the process was a, a successful one. And so this just simply takes things to a whole other level. Debbie, thank you for sharing your story. We're so glad. Your dad's doing great. We've got about 20 seconds. Give he us is, an update on he dad. He is actually doing great. His hospital stay was uh, four days he left hospital four days. four days. He left hospital with full speech, full wow. movement, wow. function, and uh, uh, it, winter has been a little rough. It's been a little cold, so he's hanging tight in the house right now. But I'm sure uh, as as summer, spring, and summer approaches, uh, hopefully we can get him back in his garage and puttering on his That's airplanes. Right. Get out there tinkering. Yeah. Debbie Swan, thank you so much for joining us. Debbie is a nurse. She has been for 40 years, 25 of those years, at Health Sciences Centre. And again, the HSC Hope to Life Radiothon, presented by Merrick Holmes, taking place on February 2nd, right here on 680 CJOB. How well, everybody's heard about the bird. Behind the Glass Jury with all the best music, Greg Mackling, Brett McGarry, and Lauren McNabb with you on this Thursday morning. And uh, Brett, song... Birds, Canadian songbirds, have had to change their tune. What's this all about? Yeah, researchers at the University of Manitoba have discovered that noise pollution from things like oil and gas drilling equipment can drown out important parts of their songs. So to tell us more about how birds are having to adapt their songs, we are joined by one of those researchers, Dr. Mia Warrington from the Natural Resources Institute at the University of Manitoba. Dr. Warrington, thank you so much for joining us today on 680 CJOB. Hello. So Good what, morning. So what's happening here? What, what is causing these birds to have to change their tune? 
Well, what's going on is these birds are actually changing their songs. Um, we're finding in areas that are noisy with oil well infrastructure and natural gas infrastructure. So actually what we're seeing is that birds here are changing parts of their songs and different parts of the songs in different ways, depending on the type of noise that they are actually living in. So one of the questions uh, that listeners might be asking is, why should I care about this? Not to be blunt, but this is, like, what are the ramifications of this change in uh, what these birds are doing? Well, what we're seeing is that we're changing the soundscape that is around these birds. So while we're actually getting noisier in some areas, the birds are dealing with the noise and they're actually changing their vocalizations. Now, it still remains seen whether or not this is helping them adapt. So we want to understand, are they able to cope with the noise or if there's something else going on there um, with the uh, changes in their vocalizations? We might hear it as pretty sounds, but this is how they communicate to one another, right? So is there a concern that, you know, when they're mating or trying to indicate there's a problem in the area or whatever whatever they might be doing, that they're no longer doing it in the way they used to and therefore they might not be understanding one another either? Yeah, they may not be understanding themselves or they might be losing some information along the way. So these modifications might help them adapt to it, which is very important as us understanding how a bird may be able to adapt to change. On the other hand, we might find that this may is not actually helping them and they're struggling. Now, grassland songbirds are already declining, are they not? Yeah, that is correct. So um, grassland songbirds are the fastest declining avian group or bird groups that um, we're seeing in Canada right now. <clears throat> so then is this going to contribute to that? Or could it contribute to more declining populations? It possibly could, um, but we still have to see whether or not this is the changes are helping them cope with it or whether or not this is actually contributing to their inability um, or lower reproductive rates if that is indeed what's going on. Mia, in the in the few seconds we have left here, songbirds are pretty to hear. They're beautiful to look at. What role do they play in the ecosystem and what would we be losing if they were to disappear or have their numbers reduced dramatically because of this? Well, birds um, serve many ecosystem services. They can be pollinators as well, spreading grass seeds around the area, as well as being an important part of the food chain as well. Um, so really, they, they make a part of our, our nature and a natural habitat. So when we lose birds, we really start to lose um, all sorts of ecosystem features as well. Well, Dr. Warrington, thank you for taking some time with us to uh, share this story with us. We appreciate your research and uh, you uh, telling us all about this. All right. Thank you very much. Dr. Mia Warrington from the Natural Resources Institute at the University of Manitoba. Oh, little Van Halen. Never That's get just Panama. for you. Yeah. That's just for you, Lorraine. I like it. That would have ne- been my band. We never, ever pay, play Van Halen otherwise. I can't. That cannot possibly <laughs> be true in Winnipeg that that song hasn't aired. Jerry plays Van Halen. <laughs> One Van Halen intro for me every single morning. Perfect. I so love it. So how about that? Lorraine McNabb, uh, Global News at 6. And uh, Lorraine, it's been great to hang out with you. Are you going to come back tomorrow or have we scared no, you? No, I'm super excited to come back tomorrow now that I know that I have to be here at certain times, not be running around the studio in the wrong spots, put the headphones on. Now, there were not <laughs> enough birthday cake Tim Hortons in the box that you brought this morning. So if you could rectify that, okay. you will be welcome back tomorrow you got morning. Whose birthday? No one. This is just the birthday bring... cake Timbits are the best Timbits. <laughs> birthday it. cake Timbits. Oh, yeah. Have you not had these uh, no. marvels of... I was going to say nature, but there's nothing natural about them.
I have not. Wheat flour? Man-made goodness. Yeah, I have Deliciousness. Not. I've not had a Timbit in a while, so thanks for bringing those in today. We're writing it down. Loren. So, um... You're done, basically, for the day. Normally, you would have the 6 o'clock, but it is... A, do you feel like you're missing out? Because there is a lot of stuff going on today. There's a lot in the news uh, to watch for today. A lot going on at City Hall. A Thursday council meeting, which is rare, and they're that long controversial, contentious debate over the Vimy Arena and what's going to be done with it. Will it be turned into the Bruce Oak Recovery Treatment Center for Addicts? Uh, that's up for a vote today. And basically, it, it needs to pass today so they can move on with that project. They're watching that. They're watching smoking on patios if they're going to vote for that to go through. So it'll be busy at City Hall. And then, of course, we've had that arrest with that downtown assault uh, yesterday. Police are going to talk about that at 11, about who they've arrested uh, in that vicious case of that Poor teenager in a bus shelter uh, being brutally beaten two well, days ago. Well, fortunately, and I suspect maybe that the release of that video may have helped police. I'm sure they'll give us details as to whether or not that did play a role. But it opens once again this never-ending conversation, at least it seems like it's never-ending, about downtown safety. I, you know, Loren, you've lived other places, as have I, and I don't know if there's a community that I've ever visited or lived in that talks more about downtown and the vibe vitality of downtown and downtown redevelopment. How do we make it a better place to visit, to live, to play uh, than Winnipeg? And these things do not help that conversation. Well, no. And we often talk about what's the reality of Winnipeg's downtown versus the perception. And is it just that we think it's unsafe? But actually, if you looked at the, the statistics, is you know, what's the balance there? And when you have cases like this, the difference being a random unprovoked attack that gets that conversation going Again, I don't think anybody cares about statistics. It's about perception. It's mm-hmm. about feeling. And we're getting text messages uh, along those lines. Uh, one of them, one listener has an interesting take. With all of the drug crime downtown and throughout the rest of, not only in Winnipeg, but also in the rest of Canada, why is our government still legalizing pot? Okay. Uh, thank you for that feedback. And then Rick has weighed in and says, when they keep increasing parking costs downtown people don't want to go shopping downtown anyway get a bite to eat walk the mall you come back to a parking ticket now with drug dealers randomly attacking people i suspect there will be a lot of empty parking spots and in true city fashion they will increase parking again to compensate for the losses you can park at any other mall and spend hours shopping without worrying about tickets or drug dealers uh, thank you for that feedback rick and uh, yeah this is one incident but it's a horrifying incident it's- Two separate things raised there, though, by that last message is that we don't know what the circumstances were for this suspect. Drugs haven't been mentioned. We don't know what led to this attack. So we don't want to immediately link that it's related to a drug problem or but mental that, health issue. But the, the question would be about the, the random nature of being down there. Right. But, but but I think the part of the point that we can take out of the listener's point is the fact that that bus shelter attached to Portage place is a known haven for drug dealers and for drug deals. And it's a no-go zone for just about anybody in Winnipeg knows. Like, if you take a bus, you do not go in that bus shelter. It's probably the warmest bus shelter in the world, but nobody in their right mind goes and spends any time in there unless they're in a group of people. And so uh, for... Everyone to kind of know that and for it to continue and mm-hmm. perpetually be a problem, I think is bothersome to a lot of people. The frustrating part about that, so I first started with Global TV in Winnipeg in 2000. Went away, went, moved to other places, Toronto, Jerusalem, come back again, and we're still talking about downtown safety. And that's super frustrating to hear. And you know the mayor's been talking about it. He's coming up with a, he's asked council to come back with a report on downtown safety initiatives due out this spring. 
I don't know what will be in that because in many ways, a lot of the ideas, the things they've tried, the, the safety biz, the downtown cadets, more cops, less cops. Uh, what What is the answer to solving that? More people? For sure. It's always more people. That's always the answer. Yeah. I mean, I lived in downtown Toronto. I would be out at two in the morning and I didn't think about walking back to my apartment worried about being attacked alone as a female. That's not the case here. You've got the Jets game. You've got more hotels downtown. You've got more amenities. You still need way more people down there moving around because more is better. Brett, that uh, texter mentioned parking as well on the idea of cost of parking. I'd like to combat that with uh, my experience is the flip side. Um, my biggest problem when I go downtown is finding parking. So there are a lot of people downtown. There are a lot of people using on-street parking. That really is ne- – that's the bigger issue is finding parking when you go down, not paying for it. You're just happy to get to get a spot in a lot of cases. The not paying for it thing, though. I don't know, Brett. I mean, do you think we need to sort of put that aside? Because the, the I think downtown parking – I, work, I pay for a parking pass downtown. That's expensive. But to go downtown and have a meal or go to the game, I don't find that uh, extraordinarily expensive compared to other cities I've lived in. So I, I, I think that's one we need to kind of like push aside a little bit. Does a it deter bucks you? An hour. Does what? it deter you to, to choose a downtown restaurant if you're going to drive somewhere to go for a meal? Do you take that into account? Oh, I'm not going to go, say, to the Gary Street keg. I'll go to the keg in... In uh, there's one on McGilvery now, right, or in that area, or the one in St. James, because you don't have to pay for parking. A hundred percent, it does. It factors into my decision. Like I, I did eat downtown recently, but that's because I went to see Come From Away at Royal MTC. So I was going downtown. So the restaurant came. Well, we're going downtown. So now let's go out to eat while we're down there. But if it was just to go to a restaurant. I probably would have looked elsewhere, depending on whether or not, like, let's say it was a Saturday night and we were going downtown to eat and then drink and hang out. Then I would have, you know, taken a bus or a cab or whatever. But yeah, because I ended up paying 14 bucks for parking that day when I could have if there was a spot in the street. And I think that's the problem, right? Because it was a Sunday free parking. If you can find a spot, if you can't, then you're paying. There was one lot that was $6. Then I ended up paying $14. So it's across the board. It's kind of, if you're lucky enough, you find a free spot. Otherwise you got to pay out the nose. But there are very few Canadian cities with a free spot downtown. And, and I, like maybe That's it's why just... I live in Winnipeg. <laughs> no, <laughs> That's I, supposed to be one of the advantages, I right? I suppose, but I, I, it's still even, you know, to say, like, I didn't get a free spot, so that's going to stop me from going downtown. I feel like that is a, a silly statement. There are other reasons I can understand, you know, the news of this week might make people think twice about things, but the parking for me personally is... Yeah, I'm good. Yeah, and we're at a tipping point, right, where there are enough attractions, enough things going on where you kind of, well, just part of part and parcel to going for a meal, going to a play, going to a game, whatever it might be, and then going for a drink, is that you do pay for parking like you would in any other major city, probably in the world, but for sure in in North America. One thing and one distinction between Canada and America, uh, besides the actual court systems themselves, is the presence of cameras. And we had a little bit of a conversation about that as well this morning. Some contrasting cases, one in Michigan with regards to uh, sexual assault, uh, where the uh, Jeff, uh, his name is slipping my mind off the top of my Nasser. head. Nasser, who got 175 years in prison. We saw all there was, the video was available for all of the victim impact statements, several days worth. And then we had the Cooper Nemeth uh, situation uh, where there were no cameras and we've had to sort of reiterate and read in the victim's uh, voice 
uh, their statements and the whole discussion of whether it's time for Canada to embrace cameras in the courtroom. Well, it's a good debate because our reporters will come back regularly from a courtroom and see, say, wow, that the, the statement from the mom was so emotional, so incredible, or, or from the cousin or brother, whoever gets to make that statement. And while it's it's great to read it in text, you don't get that same emotion. So I can see the argument for putting the camera in there. We've done, I think, four pilot projects in Manitoba. One of them, a few years ago in 2014, did allow a camera for a victim impact statement in an impaired driving case. And it was powerful to hear that daughter speak about the death of her mom and, and what that driver took away from her. But I, I think there's going to be a, a real slow movement on this in Manitoba. They're not rushing forward with putting those cameras in the courtroom for the very reason of having that slippery slope of when does it become um, valuable to the, to, uh, the viewer or Manitobans and when does it become theater and, and where's the line there? Thanks to Behind the Glass Jerry and Shannon Lee Vidal for producing the morning show on 680 CJOB and thanks to Loren McNabb, guest host. I will back be tomorrow. back tomorrow with the birthday cake timbit and yeah, for baby. Greg's request. Yeah. Gonna need a couple bucks from you, buddy, though. Gonna do extra <laughs> sit-ups tonight. <laughs> Macklin McGarry and McNabb on 680 CJOB. Yeah.